Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Gracious God, may your messages and preaching come to us through your Holy Spirit's power so that our faith might not rest on our own ability, but rather by your power and presence. Help us never to depend upon our own might or power, but always upon your spirit. By your Son's name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Hear these words. Genesis 37, one through four. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. 17 through 21. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let us not take this life. 23 through 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. 29 through 36. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, See now whether it's your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The word of God for the people of God. I just want to say really quickly to Lonnie, thank you for reading half the Bible for me. <laughs> I just want credit. I um, could have said read all of chapter 37, which would have been double the amount of words that he already said, but um, thank you. You did a great job. Um, I've heard some people say they won't, <laughs> they're thinking of not signing up to be a scripture reader until they know what scripture they have to read. Um, hmm. <laughs> So we're in the third Sunday of a three-week series 
talking about picture, picture perfect, exploring the lie of the perfect family. And along this way, we have looked at Abraham. Uh, that first Sunday, we looked at Abraham and we talked about what we knew about Abraham based upon our assumptions and what we knew about Abraham based upon scripture. And what we found is a lot of what we thought about Abraham, this guy that immediately said yes to God, moved across uh, the country uh, and was faithful, uh, was a funny story, not necessarily based in scripture. That instead we found a story about someone who debated for about 16 years before he decided to leave on the mission that God had called him on. And that while he was on that mission, he um, had occasional moments to lie about whether his wife was his sister or his wife. Um, and that when he arrived, um, he had some obedience issues as well. Um, I think what we learned in that first week is that the goal to be used by God is not to be perfect, but rather to be available. And then last week we talked about the challenge of favoritism in a family and how the habits and practices that we have raising our children uh, will be those habits and practices inherited down the line. And so you have Jacob and Esau. Jacob was his mother's favorite. Esau was his father's favorite. Jacob steals Esau's inheritance by trickery. Um, now we see Jacob's family. Uh, uh, Jacob, is, um, Jacob has a number of children. Um, if you wanted to be particular, he has 12, which become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph is his favorite. And so today we think about uh, the story of Joseph, about the sibling rivalry among his brothers, uh, and a little bit of a question of who rescues who. I want to open with a strange story. I've always been a fan of Max Lucado, uh, especially when I was uh, younger uh, in ministry. Um, Max Lucado has a number of books. They're very devotionally oriented. They're often... Uh, um, uh, organized around a particular theme. And so there's one particular story that I have always loved since I first read it, and it's from his book, Into the Storm. Um, Into the Storm has the particular story about Chippy, the parakeet. Anybody familiar with Chippy? Okay, um, forgive me as I read it because, you know, Max Lucado makes the big bucks and there's no reason for me to paraphrase. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next moment he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began with Chippy's owner when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it into the cage. Then the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She'd barely said hello when a loud <laughs> chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened up the bag of the vacuum. There was Chippy, still alive, but clearly stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and dirt and soot, she grabbed Chippy, raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, 
and held Jippy under the running water to clean him off. Then, realizing that Jippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She looked around on the vanity and there saw the hairdryer turned it on and blasted Chippy with hot air to dry him off. Poor Chippy. He never really knew what hit him. There was a reporter that was interested in the story, for what reason, I don't know. Um, and after the trauma that Chippy experienced a few days later, called up Chippy's owner to see how Chippy was recovering. The owner said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and stares. Max Lucado says, it's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest of hearts. I love this story because it reminds me that all of the adversity that we experience, all of the difficulty that happens, all of the things that could steal our song are not always intentional. I don't know about you, but the first thing I try to remember when life goes difficult is that there is nobody out there, rarely, that is the evil genius plotting my demise. Nobody sits in an overstuffed chair with a cat on their lap, petting it, thinking evil thoughts about me, that oftentimes it is the matter of accidents that result in some of our um, song stealing happening. Sometimes we sit and we stare because we're trying to think through all of what's just happened to us, not unlike what happened to Chippy. What I love about the story of Joseph, which we'll be talking about today, is it is one of the strangest stories you'll read it's a story about Joseph and a series of events that happened to him. But instead of letting it steal his song, what the story does for Joseph is that he al it allows him to dream out loud and eventually to rescue his family. I wonder, throughout this whole series, we've been talking about um, the good things and the difficult things that our family passes on to us. You know, some of the difficult things is that we get this expectation that God wants us to be perfect before we can be used by God. We, we pick up this baggage around favoritism. Everybody kind of has that after the experience or, you know, after childhood experience where whether you were the favorite or not, there's still some baggage to carry. Whether you carried the expectations of being the favored one or whether you were always pining for your parents' love because you weren't. Uh, we also, today, talking about sibling rivalry, some of that difficulty that comes down the line. I have to say that spending time talking about family is really important for me. Uh, many of my colleagues as preachers, they will talk about the uh, family being the basic place where discipleship is had. They'll talk about family as kind of the building block of our American culture. They will talk about family as a biblical principle that must be adhered to so that we might inherit the promise. Now, I am not against family at all. I just think we have way too tight of a definition of what family is. If you look uh, sociologically and demographically around our area, you'll find that there is no normal, there's no more than 50% 
um, experience of family. I, I mean, you've got biological parents with biological children. You've got um, adopted children. You've got uh, children living in, uh, with relatives. You've got, you've got all of it. None of it is normal or standard. I like to say that normal is just a setting on a washing machine. And so when we think about this, the fastest growing segment of family is actually grandparents who are raising their uh, grandchildren. Um, And so when we think about what does family look like, I think especially if we want to go to a biblical definition of family, especially that particular kind of family that gives us the building blocks for faith, we're really looking at something more than just mom, dad, and 2.4 children and a dog. We're really looking at something that is intergenerational. Think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you think about their families, they are extended and large. That with that large family comes support, it, it, it comes loyalty, comes trust. And so I hope when we think about the family, I'd also add into this idea of biblical family. There is the family you're born with and there is the family you choose, right? We have both kind of family at our house. Uh, we have those kinds of family that came with blood, and sometimes we, uh, we like them, and sometimes we don't like them, but we always love them. And then there are those pieces of family that along the way, in the midst of life, we have found trust and loyalty with people who had our back and who love us like family. So I want to make sure that we widen that definition of what family looks like. You know, the story of Joseph is a story of both favoritism, sibling rivalry, and challenge. I think it's a story that Dateline would love. It's a story that you could find on a Netflix original. It is a story that has it all. Let me summarize it really quick for you. So imagine with me a kid whose mother dies in childbirth, is raised by his dad without his mother, who dreams of accomplishing something so much more significant with his life, but who gets uh, stuck into some strife with his brothers, so much so that they plan to kill him. At just age 17, he has to leave the house because his brothers sell him into slavery and he's dragged off to a foreign land. Far away from home, he experiences adversity. Uh, His boss's wife, accuses him of uh, being inappropriate with her. He finds himself sent to jail, uh, un, um, let's see, um, for a crime he didn't commit. Once again, he has to live with the hopes awakened and then the hopes dashed in his life. It's pretty hard to see how Joseph continued to nurture those dreams through 13 years of increasing strife and misery. He rises to the heights of leadership, the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, And then there is that surreal moment when his family, his father and his brothers, the same brothers that sold him off into slavery, show up almost crawling and begging for help. And what does Joseph do? This would be a great um, season cliffhanger. Does he exact sweet revenge or does he extend mercy? to the family he loves. I mean, this is a great story, all contained between chapters 37 and 50 of Genesis. See, I went easy on Lonnie, I'm just saying. (laughs) 
And so let's talk a little bit about some of the dynamics that are going on. Um, one of those dynamics is interesting in that Jacob, which in our scripture, uh, remember Jacob wrestles with God and is given a new name. That name is Israel, uh, which literally means one who struggles with God. Uh, but the scripture itself kind of goes back and forth, talks about Israel and Jacob, all one person. Um, what's funny is that Jacob knows the pain of trickery and favoritism. And what does he do? He treats Joseph as his favorite. You might say, why? Surely Jacob has more sense than that. But also remember that uh, Jacob, um, Jacob had to marry uh, Leah before he could marry Rachel. Rachel was his one true love, but because Rachel had an older sister and uh, their father, Laban, did not want to have a, I guess you could say an old maid hanging around the house, um, the deal was uh, Jacob could marry Leah, and then after seven years of labor, he could then marry Rachel. Now along the way, because we're uh, looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is infertility in the family. And so the desire to have children and to pass on the promise of God is powerful here. So powerful that Rachel and Leah have handmaids. And because of uh, Rachel and Leah's infertility, they have Jacob have children by their handmaids. And then as time goes on, um, fertility comes to them and uh, Leah has children, and then lastly, Rachel has children. Joseph is the first child that Rachel has. You see, he is the child of Joseph's old age by his uh, sweetheart love of his life, and it comes uh, towards the end of his life. Now what's difficult is that um, Rachel dies in childbirth, giving birth to a second son, Benjamin. Jacob and Joseph find consolation in each other. I mean, you can imagine um, when Jacob looks at Joseph, he sees um, the features of his love. It's hard in that grieving moment to give up and let go. And so what's a coat of many colors? Uh, that can't be too much of favoritism. Um, now I know the scripture translates it as a coat of long sleeves. There's a great Hebrew uh, translation argument going on here. I think Broadway won out with the coat of many colors. Um, but can you see how uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat had far more laughter and smiles and uh, good stuff going on than the story that the Genesis uh, passage uh, communicates. There's a lot of adversity in this story. So, um, as we think about the favoritism, as we think about the sibling rivalry, right? The favoritism results in the sibling rivalry, so much so that the brothers start conspiring for the death of Joseph. Now, why? I mean, it seems kind of strange. You got a coat, big whoop, right? You, you got a hoodie, yay, but isn't there more? There is. Uh, there's more because Joseph is truly a dreamer. It's a gift from God, uh, but Joseph has little tact with his brothers. And so he'll have a dream from God that talks about uh, Joseph's call and purpose. And he'll go to his brothers and say, hey, I had a dream. Now the dreams are all essentially the same theme. Um, in the dream, Joseph is exalted and his brothers are worth nothing, right? And, and so he goes out into the field and he tells his brothers, I had this dream from God and God said, I'm more important than you are. I mean, can you get the idea that you'd probably be conspiring to kill Joseph as well if you were his brothers? 
And so instead of killing him, they send him off to Egypt. Um, and it is by being sent off to Egypt that he rises in the ranks. And when there is famine in the land, which if you're a student of Genesis, the two things that threaten the promise of God is infertility and famine. And so as the famine comes uh, to the land, uh, all of Jacob's family travels to Egypt to beg to be part of the country so that they could have food and they could have work, which sets us up for Exodus later on. But for the moment, Joseph has the ability to make the choice. And he makes the choice. Think about that choice of all the things that have gone wrong, of all the adversity in his life, of all the bumps and bruises, of all the ways in which he has been much like Chippy the parakeet, sucked in, washed off, drowned, and blown out. He could have said no to the family. I mean, have you ever had that moment where you're sitting at the stoplight and you're thinking, man, if I didn't have those people in my life, my life would be so much better. There's so much dysfunction and there is no fun in the dysfunction that you just wish you could kind of wipe it away and have a different family. In that moment, Joseph doesn't give in to this desire to erase everything of his past, but rather he knows he has been invested in by his father. He has inherited things from his family. The one thing that he has inherited is the promise of God, that covenant. And so he is true to the covenant. You can ask the question, who rescues who in this moment? I mean, I love that phrase. I, you know, people love to ask me what kind of a dog we have, and I just love to tell them uh, rescue. <laughs> it's a rescue breed. I don't know. I mean, he looks like Toto from The Wizard of Oz, but he's just a mutt. Uh, but I often like to think, who rescued who? who? Who rescued who? Was it me that rescued Jackson from a horrible fate, or is it Jackson that rescued my family from a whole lot of boredom? It's a beautiful moment. So who rescued who? Does the family rescue Joseph, or does Joseph redeem the family? I know when we read the story about Joseph being sold into slavery, we worry about Joseph, but really what we should worry about is the promise of God. How does it survive in a foreign land? I wonder as our kids head off to college, as we wonder whether we have given them all that they need to live in a foreign land and to be faithful people of the promise, isn't it interesting that Joseph, at 17 years of age, he has what it takes. He has what it takes. It's not that uh, his parents were um, helicopter parents. It wasn't that they overachieved. It wasn't that he was perfect. He didn't need the intensity of that expectation. What he needed was the security and love of a spa safe space at home. It's interesting, what do our kids need to be successful? What do our kids need to be faithful? Wouldn't it be ex exciting and surprising to find that our kids have everything that they need as they go off to dream a new dream in the world around them? Joseph is a story about how uh, we should think that um, perfect family is not what everybody should strive for, but rather being a family that's available, available for God's call, uh, that in spite of our imperfections, we are able to see that God could have a purpose for us. Lastly, the things that we invest in our children are important. 
all of those little moments along the way. Uh, um, uh, you know, I often talk about how Grace and I spent a year and I think it was sixth grade math, doing everything fractions. We added fractions, and we subtracted fractions, and we divided fractions, and we multiplied fractions. And I gotta be honest with you, I took an arts degree for a reason, right? I don't do that well. My best math is the Trinity. One plus one plus one equals one. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. Um, but because of her sixth grade math, every night we were working those fractions, listening to Khan Academy, doing our best to understand this foreign language, which might as well have been in a foreign land. But because of that time that we spent together, I honestly believe that I have credibility and she has credibility with each other. We can do tough things and we can do tough things together. And my hope is, is that later on when life gets tough, she'll remember that time that I invested in her and that she invested in me as we work together struggling through the suffering of fractions. What are the moments in which you are um, working hard to invest in what your, what your children are going to inherit? What are those moments and places where you're gaining credibility with them, where they're gaining credibility with God? where life is being changed because they know you respect their dreams. The story of Joseph reminds us uh, that in that moment, God can rescue and redeem the family, no matter how far they've wandered. That in Joseph's dreams, they find a reality that is the promise of God. I wonder who rescues who? What are all, what's all that baggage that you've been carrying around with you? It's not necessarily what um, I, I believe Viktor Frankl, uh, man's search for meaning, is a, a great wisdom here. It's not what the world does to you. It's how you choose to respond. And so sitting where you are today, in a, a person who has inherited uh, an investment from your family, how might God use you to redeem your family? How might God use you and rescue you? How might the promise of God continue? despite of the lie of the perfect family. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.